following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Now we're in the series in the book of Exodus. We've covered a lot of ground in Exodus this year and we're in chapter 33 this morning. So let's uh, just get our bearings here, where all of this fits into the story, because this is not as as well known, this chapter, as other parts of Exodus, so it could be a little bit disorientating. Uh, Remember, the Israelites are at Mount Sinai, okay, it's where they're camping out, they've had God reveal His presence to them at Mount Sinai, and this, this story in Exodus 33 that Bev's just read, this comes hard on the heels of the golden calf incident that we looked at last week, so that's all happened. This act where Israel has completely turned away from God. They've built a a statue of a a calf made of gold. They've bowed down to it and worshipped it and called it God. Remember this? And said, here are your gods, Israel, who led you up out of Egypt. This terrible act of apostasy and idolatry uh, with which God was very angry. Moses was very angry and a whole lot of punishment flowed from that event. That was really the darkest moment in the whole book of Exodus. It was the most spiritually dark, the, 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 the moral low point of the whole book was the golden calf incident. That's where we've just been. And yet, in the midst of that, and on the back of that, God shows a whole lot of mercy to Israel. He doesn't wipe them out. He'd said he would do that. He'd said to Moses earlier on that he was going to wipe Israel out now. Moses, I'll make you a greater nation than any of them. But he hasn't done that. Uh, Some of them have been killed, but only a fraction of the whole lot. Israel is still intact as a nation. And towards the end of chapter 32, and then coming into this chapter, chapter 33, God basically says to Moses, Righto, pick yourself up and get on with it. Uh, This thing has happened. It's been terrible. But Moses, up you go. Pack up the camp and keep on going. Carry on the journey now. You've, You've had your time at Mount Sinai. Now carry on and keep on heading towards the promised land. As you start off in chapter 33... It seems like things are back on track. God is allowing his people to continue the Exodus journey. He even reiterates his promise that an angel will go ahead of them, that they'll get to their destination, that these nations in Canaan will be driven out before them. All these good things that he'd promised, they're all still going to happen. And it sort of seems like, okay, all right, well, that, that, was, that was a really bad thing that happened, but we're kind of back on track here. And the journey is continuing as it was before. And then God drops the bombshell. Then he says, did you catch this in verse 3? These these seven little words in the middle of that verse, but I will not go with you. Seven words. God says, you carry on the journey, you go off to the promised land, I'll send an angel, I'll make sure that you're taken care of there, but by the way, my presence will not go with you. And that's game over. That's it. Suddenly you realize what the real consequence of the golden calf was. It's not that Israel was going to be destroyed. It's that God's removed his presence. It's that God's actually pulled his presence away from his people. And he said, you you go off by yourselves. I am not going to go with you because if I do, I'm not sure I can restrain my wrath if there's another incident like that. This is what God's saying. And this is utterly devastating for Israel. This is massive. One uh, commentator on this passage says this, The significance of this turn of events cannot be stressed too highly. The purpose of the Exodus was for God and His people to be together. 
This is not a setback. This is the end of the road. That's what's happening here. The whole purpose of Exodus, the whole point of the covenant was God and Israel journeying together. God's people were Israel. And now when God says, my presence will not go with you, that's the end of the covenant. That's the end of the law. That's the end of the tabernacle because there's no more God dwelling among his people. That's, this is the end of Israel as the people of God. They, they are now just another tribe wandering in the desert. No different to any other nation. This is game over for Israel. So what happens? The people take off their ornaments, they're distressed, they weep, they wail, they take off their earrings, which is ironic because what happened last time they took off their earrings, threw them in the fire, made a golden calf. Now they take off their earrings as a sign of repentance, as a sign of humility before God. They're distressed by the catastrophe that's unfolding before them here. They realize God's not coming with us anymore. Moses, though, does something different. Moses goes into this little tent called the tent of meeting. This is a little tent probably just big enough for him, a little pup tent that he took and pitched outside the camp. So when he wasn't meeting with God on Mount Sinai, this is where he met with God. This is before the tabernacle was built. So Moses just had a tent removed from the rest of the camp and he would go there to meet with God, to commune with God, to be in God's presence, to hear from God, to intercede before God for the Israelites. And that's where he goes. God said he's not going to go with the Israelites, but Moses has still got this unique relationship with God and he uses it to his advantage. So he goes into the tent of meeting and he just pleads for mercy, just begs God for mercy. And he tries to think of every possible reason he could for God to change his mind and back down from this horrible threat that God has made to revoke his presence from his people. He even gets a little bit cheeky and he reminds God of something God said and says, remember God, you've said that these are your people. You know, remember God, just in case you need a little memory uh, jog here, you have said that Israel is your people. You've got a journey. You can't just pull your presence away from them, God. You've made certain promises here. Moses is desperate. And then God's reply comes in verse 14. The Lord replied, My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. Now, when I first read that, I thought, fantastic. This is the resolution that we needed. This is the sigh of relief. This is God backing down and saying, okay, I'll do what you asked. I'll go with you. It sounds like that, doesn't it? But there's a problem in this verse. The problem is that the word you is in the singular, not the plural. doesn't take a lot of English grammar to figure out what that means. God's not saying, I'm going to go with you. He's saying, I'll go with you, Moses. My presence will go with you, and I will give you rest but not them. The situation is no better than before. In fact, it's worse because if you think about it now from Israel's perspective, not only have they lost God, now they're losing Moses. Now we've got a situation where God's saying, me and Moses are going to go off in this direction and you guys just go on off in that direction and have fun. So this has just gone from bad to worse for Israel. I mean, it's a credit to Moses that God's willing to do this, that God's willing to say, my favor is on you, Moses. And I'll journey with you. I'll give you rest. I'll lead you into the promised land. I'll make you a bigger and greater nation than any of them. But not the rest of the Israelites. And so Moses doesn't accept this. He doesn't take up God's offer, even though maybe it was tempting. But Moses goes back into the tent of meeting for another round with God. And he again begs that God's presence would go with his people. And it's an interesting insight, isn't it, into, into the heart of Moses here. That Moses' heart is not just for himself. 
but for his people. You see how, how much God has transformed the heart of this man over time? You know, despite all of their complaining, despite all of their bickering, despite the grumbling and the stiff-necked people that they were, Moses is still just binding himself to his people here. He said, I don't want to go up by myself. I don't just want to go me and God. These are your people, God. In fact, he says, is at verse 15, he says, if your presence does not go with us, you hear the emphasis on us? Moses is talking plural while God's been talking singular. If your presence does not go with us, then don't send us up from here. We can't take another step, God, unless your presence goes with all of us. Moses binds himself to Israel so that it's a package deal. He says, God, you can't take me and not them. We go together. These are my people. You take me and them, not me instead of them. And then finally, we get to verse 17. And this is the resolution that we've been desperately hoping for through this chapter. Verse 17, the Lord says to Moses, I will do the very thing you have asked because I'm pleased with you and I know you by name. Finally, after two rounds in the tent of meeting, God says, I will, I will grant your request, Moses, and my presence will go with Israel. We'll carry on the journey together. Not because of anything good in Israel, not because of anything they've done, but because of Moses. It's quite clear here, because of you, Moses, because of this unique relationship that Moses had with God, because of the favor of God on Moses' life. That's why God grants this request. It's on the basis of Moses' character and his petition before God and this uniqueness of his relationship with Yahweh. So God says, I will journey with you. And the crisis is finally averted. A disaster is avoided. And the Exodus story can finally continue. The whole biblical story can finally continue because this was just about game over. This was a real knife-edge moment in Exodus. I'd never really seen it, noticed it before. But this could have gone either way. A bit like the game at the beginning of the second half. You know, this could have gone either way. But Moses goes back and he petitions God and God says, I will do what you've asked, Moses. He backs down. Does he really change his mind? We don't quite know. But he grants Moses' request. And we're supposed to get to the end of verse 17 and breathe a huge collective sigh of relief. The tension that's been building here. It's finally resolved. Well, as I've had this story in my, in my mind over the past couple of weeks, it's not one I've looked at much before, but I've had this churning through my mind and heart over the last week or two. And it took me a long time to see something in this story that I hadn't seen before. Uh, in fact, I'd written this whole sermon. And then I saw something in this passage. And I had to go back and rework a whole lot of my sermon. It was Wednesday night. Well, Wednesday late afternoon, I was at a pastor's uh, retreat this last week and I was lying in bed on Wednesday. I was feeling pretty rough, had a horrible sore throat and I was just lying in bed and I was just churning over this message in my mind, just going over it, just going over the story, thinking about the text, thinking about the flow of this story in Exodus 33. And I just, I just heard something in this story that I'd not heard before. Uh, it wasn't any great epiphany, it wasn't an audible word from the Lord, but I just saw Jesus in this story in a way that I'd not seen him before. I don't think I was forcing him in there. I just saw the way that this story points to the gospel, that the story and the flow of the story actually tells the story of the gospel and points us to the good news that's coming down the track in Jesus. You look at this language in this, in this chapter. Look at the words that are used to describe Moses. He's found favor with God. God knows him by name. God is well pleased with him. Who does that sound like? 
These are, these are words, these are phrases that apply to Jesus. Moses, in many instances in Exodus, is what we call a typology of Jesus. In other words, he's a foreshadowing of Jesus. He gives us a hint, in a very human form, of what Jesus will be like and what Jesus will do when he finally comes. And you see it here. This language of how pleased God is with Moses is indicative of how pleased God is with his own son. And this face-to-face relationship Moses has with God meets with God face-to-face, talks with him as a friend. This is the relationship between the father and the son, face-to-face. This is Jesus that we're hearing here, signposts to Jesus anyway. And you think of where we are in this passage. Much as we'd like to think we're Moses, we're not. We're much more like the Israelites, right? Stiff-necked is probably an apt word for many of us. Stiff-necked, it sort of implies that stubbornness, that selfishness, that hard-heartedness towards God. That's all of us. We don't deserve God's presence to go with us. We all deserve God to say to us, my my presence will not go with you. What have you done to deserve that? And yet there is one who has found favor with God, Jesus. There is one on whom God's favor truly rests. And he's gone into the tent of meeting, as it were, on our behalf. He's not been content for the Father to say, my presence will not go with you, with us. But Jesus has gone before the Father on our behalf. He's interceded. He's brought the sacrifice of his own life, his own body broken for us. He's laid that down before the Father. And he said, Father, I'm asking you to have mercy on these people in spite of their sin, in spite of their stubborn, stiff-necked hearts. On the basis of my sacrifice, would you be merciful? And the Father has said, yes. The Father has said, I will do what you ask, Jesus. Because I am pleased with you. Just as he said it to Moses. That's what the Father says to the Son. I will pour out my presence on those who belong to you, Jesus. Not because of anything they've done, but because, Jesus, I'm pleased with you. God pours his presence on us because he's present with Jesus. He delights in you because he delights in Jesus. He loves you because he first loved his own Son. His favor is on you because his favor rests on Jesus. And if you're in Jesus, God's favor truly rests upon each of us, each of us who belong to Jesus. And so God has poured his presence out in the form of his spirit, poured his presence out on us. He said, my presence will go with you. It will journey with you. God's given us his spirit. He goes with us. We have the presence of God. In fact, we've got the presence of God in an even more substantial way than the Israelites had it. We've got the presence of God in an even more substantial way than even Moses had it. You think about Moses in the tent of meeting. Who gets to go in the tent of meeting? Just Moses? Only Moses. What does everyone else do when Moses goes into the tent of meeting? What does it say? They stand at the door of their own tent and they watch. Well, Moses has this time with God. Moses is the only one who can really encounter the presence of God. But what has happened post-Pentecost is the Spirit has been poured out and now we can each have our own tent of meeting. Now we can each have the ability to encounter the presence of God face to face as Moses did. That doesn't mean you're going to necessarily see God visibly. I'm not saying that. But we have this intimacy with God now. In fact, even greater intimacy because the Spirit of God is within us. Not just around us, within us now. We're filled with God's presence continually, permanently. God has said, never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. He's not going anywhere. He is present with you. We can speak with God as with a friend now just as Moses did. Again, that doesn't mean you're necessarily going to hear God's voice audibly speaking to you. Although I heard a great quote recently. Someone said, if you want to hear God speak to you, just read the Bible out loud. Pretty good. Pretty good, right? You can hear God speaking to you every day on Bible Gateway. Just put it on audio. 
There you go. But we have that proximity with God now because of Jesus. We have intimacy. We have closeness with him that even Moses would have longed for, could only have dreamt of. But even though we have this amazing access to the presence of God, and his presence does go with us now, permanently, in a continual sense, so often many of us aren't practicing the presence of God. We're not engaging with the presence of God. So often many of us are not pitching that tent of meeting and going into it and leaning into the presence of God and living by the presence of God. There is a difference between just having the presence of God in your life as an objective reality. If you're a Christian, if you belong to Jesus, you have that. The Spirit of God is present with you 24-7. But there is a difference between that and being empowered by the presence of God in your daily life. There is a difference. And I think many Christians go through their lives having the presence of God and yet not always being in the presence of God and engaging with the presence of God and living into the presence of God and walking by the presence of God. And by that, I don't mean just always feeling God's presence, by the way. Sometimes that's what we hear when we talk about this. Oh, I'm supposed to feel God's presence more and I don't really feel it. So am I, am I on board with all this? I'm not talking about feelings. You might feel God's presence more today because you're all zhuzhed up after the wind and just kind of spills over into other areas of your life. In a way, that's fine. Doesn't, that's okay. Okay, good. So you feel closer to God. Other days you won't, and honestly, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't really matter how you feel. It doesn't really matter what your emotions are telling you. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about being empowered by God's presence at a deeper level than your emotions and your feelings. Being empowered at the level of your soul. It's far deeper. Far deeper. This is the core of our being. I'm talking about being empowered by God's presence as we draw his strength into our lives each day. As we draw his mercies, fresh mercies, new mercies every morning, into his life, into our life each day. Drawing his power so that we would be conformed a little more to his image every day. Drawing on the power of his spirit so his perspective would be our perspective on the events of our day. Drawing from the restfulness of Jesus so that our soul would rest with God during the events of our day. We can be in the presence of God and yet not be empowered by the presence of God. And the fundamental way to be empowered by the presence of God is to do what Moses did and pitch a tent of meeting in your life. To pitch a tent of meeting. Really, he gave us a model of how to do this. Moses went outside the camp. You read the language there in the text sometimes. He went outside the camp. In fact, the text says he went some distance from the camp. He's a smart man. He knew what was going on. He knew that if he pitched his tent of meeting in the middle of the camp, what's going to happen? Everyone's knocking on the door. Moses, finished. I need a word. Got a problem here. Need some help. Need you to resolve this dispute, whatever. He, you know, and he's just hearing it when he's in the tent of meeting, all the clamor and all the clatter. No, no, he had to go outside the camp. He had to find some solitude. The tent of meeting represents a space you go to meet with God, to be with God, and to be empowered by his presence each day. Each day. This is a practice Jesus had worked into his life. There's numerous references in the Gospels to Jesus regularly withdrawing from the crowds, regularly withdrawing from the people. In fact, one text in the Gospels says that he regularly withdrew and went to lonely places to pray. He just had this as a rhythm of his life. He sought out solitude. He knew the power that had to work on his own relationship with the Father. One writer says, solitude is the furnace of transformation. It's really where God gets a hold of our hearts. It's where the clatter of life just dims and we really focus in our hearts and minds on God. This doesn't mean community is not important. We spend a lot of time here talking about community and the togetherness that's vital, but so is solitude. That It's not either or, 
But there is a time for solitude, and that's what the tent of meeting represents. A time and a place and a space to go away and be alone with God, preferably on a daily basis, to be empowered by God's presence each day. It's a basic practice in the Christian life. It's a vital practice in the Christian life. But we've become so unaccustomed to it. We're so ill-disciplined, I think, in this area. We need to reclaim it. We need to decide this is important for us. You've got to have a tent of meeting in your life where you go to meet with God. You can call it a quiet time. You can call it a connecting time, communing time, whatever you like. In this passage, I'm calling it a tent of meeting because it reflects what Moses did, this practice that he had in his life. So that means having a space, having a space you go. Could be a bedroom, could be the office if that works, could be a study. Uh, It could be a place around other people, possibly, if you know, if you trust yourself to be focused on God, even if there's other people around you. So what I'm saying is it could be on the bus going to work as long as you are not distracted by the guy sitting next to you. Some people have that ability. Rather than being distracted in a bustly place, it actually gives them hyper-focus on what they're doing. If that's you, wonderful. It wouldn't be me, personally. I couldn't do it. I'd be too easily distracted by other things. But if that's you, that might be your space. For one woman, uh, her space, her tent of meeting, was under an apron. Her name was Susanna Wesley, mother of John Wesley and Charles Wesley, the founders of the Methodist movement back in the 18th century. Susanna and her husband had 19 children. Nine of them died in infancy. So they're raising 10 kids. You can imagine how chaotic that home life would have been. But Susanna had this policy, this understanding with her kids somehow, that when she put an apron over her head, they were were not to disturb her. And this was her prayer time. This was her tent of meeting. She went under that apron, her focused time, praying for her family, praying for her sons, praying for God's will. Now, that's not for everybody I know. I mean, I know for me, if I put an apron over my head, that is a sign to my kids to jump on me as hard as they can. So it's not going to work in our house. But I'm just saying it could look like anything. could be in your car. You find a space, but do find one. Be intentional. Think about it. It could be outside. That's fine. But find a space you can go to regularly. Know that you can go there each day because sometimes it won't take much of an excuse for you not to do this. So find a place where you know you can be well-planned, put the space aside. And then you've got to find a time. You do have to find a time to be in the tent of meeting. Again, you've got to be intentional about this. If you just take the approach of saying, well, I'm just going to see how my day goes and I'm going to trust the Lord to lead me to the time when he wants me to spend in his presence and I just trust he'll open up some time during the day for me to do that, I just about guarantee you, you will close your eyes to go to sleep at the end of that day and it will not have happened. What we're talking about here is habit formation. That does not happen without intentionality. And conscious planning. It's going to take some time. And it's not a case of saying, it's going to be a quick little minute before I switch off the the light at night. Or a quick little minute before I rush out the door in the morning, grab a quick Bible verse, as I slurp some coffee, and then I'm out the door. This needs to be enough of a chunk of time that you can fully center yourself on the presence of God. Really be attuned to his presence. And in the frenetic pace of our culture, it takes time to be still, to slow down, and to center, just to stop our hearts and minds from racing so fast and be still in God's presence. I would suggest that you try and carve out at least half an hour for this each day. And I know some of you are saying, oh, it's so legalistic. You have to put a number on it. And, and to be honest, I've backed away at other times from putting a number on it and just said, oh, you just find some time. But I, I found this is such 
is such an area of weakness in so many lives, including mine. We need to understand that it takes a chunk of time to truly engage with the presence of God. If it's not exactly 30 minutes, don't be bound up by that. But just understand that this needs to be a priority in your day. And that may mean sacrificing something else. I know you're wondering how on earth am I? I don't have another half hour in my day. My, my schedule is jammed from start to finish. But I, I, I also know that for about 45% of you, all this means is less time on Facebook. All that means for about 45% of you is you don't do as much time uploading the photos and telling everyone else what you had for dinner. Just If you let that go, you've got about 30 minutes right there. For the other 55% of you, it's something else. I know, it might be a little bit less sleep at one end of the day. It might mean reshuffling your schedule, but you do have to step back and ask, what's important to me? Where are my priorities, really? Do I want to just have God's presence as a thing in my life, or do I truly want to be empowered by His presence each day of my life? And if you do, that means taking seriously this call to find a space and find a time to engage with God. Now, assuming that you do that, let's say you, you've got a place, you've got a time, you've found some space, you've closed the door of your car or your office or your house or whatever it is, and here you are now, just you and God. What do you do? What do you do in your tent of meeting? The worst thing you can do is just sit there and do nothing because you will spiral downwards in a big hurry or you will just be distracted by a billion things that are screaming for your attention and that you feel guilty because you're not doing. So you need to have a plan. Just like the time and space need a plan, the contents of that time need a plan. If I can just share a little bit of my own story here, I've really found that these times I have have shifted a lot over the course of my life. And the shape that they take and what I do in that time has really changed a lot in the past, I don't know, 10, 15 years. I used to be a lot more about doing stuff in that time, whatever time I had. It was quite a task-focused time for me, and it would be a lot about deep Bible study. So I'd be working my way through a book of the Bible. I'd be tearing this verse apart in my mind and writing it down, observations and interpretations and analysis and word studies and all of these things. And, and to be honest, that is a way that I do connect with God. And so it's good for me, but it was very cerebral. It was very much about information. Uh, it wasn't a lot about connecting personally with God's presence. It was very much in the doing mode, if you know what I mean. And I've noticed a shift. I'm not even sure it's been a conscious shift. I think maybe it's been because of family life over the past six years and there's so little other time and space to connect with God that I've found what I do in these times has changed. And so now what I'm doing is focusing more on being with God rather than doing. It doesn't always look really different, but there's quite a mindset shift there that I'm much more conscious now of doing things that will help me engage with God's presence, connect my heart with his heart, reorientate my thinking, my life, my perspective, my everything around where he is and how he sees all of this. It doesn't mean I don't don't do anything. It's not about just sitting there in a trance. But the things I do are geared to connect my soul with God and lead me deeper into his presence. So the way that I engage with scripture has changed a lot in these tent of meeting times. And this may be helpful for you or may not, but I have definitely drifted from more of a kind of study-focused time to more of a meditating on Scripture time. And that might be something to pursue. If, if Scripture, it, it, you struggle to engage with it or you find it just a bit dry, dusty, and boring, I would encourage you to look at practices around meditating, reflecting, and contemplating Scripture. If meditation is a dirty word for you, just read Psalm 1 or Joshua 1. It's actually in the Bible. Meditate on the book of the law day and night. That's what it says. 
Um, done a whole message on meditation, so I'm not going to go into that now. But meditating on Scripture, it doesn't just mean dissecting it intellectually. It means chewing it over spiritually, sucking the nutrients out of it in your mind and your heart. Really sitting with a small passage of the Bible, pretty small text, and just letting it work away on you. It's not so much about you reading Scripture at that point. It's about Scripture reading you and working you over. So here's a really simple way into that. What I'd encourage you to do, if you want to go for this, is go and buy yourself a, a plain exercise book. doesn't have to be anything fancy. doesn't need ribbons around it. Just a plain 1B5, do they still make those? Exercise book that you can write in. Get yourself one of those. Get yourself your Bible. And when you're in your tent of meeting, have both of those in front of you. And then choose a book of the Bible. Psalms is great for this. Great book to meditate on. I've spent a lot of time in Psalms over the past few years. And just start at the beginning, and each day, take a psalm, or part of a psalm, half a psalm, doesn't matter. And before you read it, just stop yourself, just quieten your own heart down. doesn't matter how you're feeling. You might feel a billion miles away from God. doesn't matter. If that's how you feel, doesn't matter. Tell your feelings to shove off. That doesn't matter. What matters is that you know God is with you, because he's told you that in his word. He's not going to leave you. He's not going to forsake you. He's closer than you think. So just stop yourself from racing away in your mind and just still your heart and just pray, God, I'm about to read your word and I pray that you'd speak to me. You don't need to use any fancy or flowery words. Just pray, God, I pray you'd just speak to me and I pray that I would really be able to hear your voice speaking to me through this passage. Tell me what you want to tell me. Put on my heart what you want to put on my heart. Help me to see in this passage particular things about you and particular things about me that will help me to grow in my relationship with you, draw nearer to you, be transformed by you. Simple prayer. Just take a few minutes to do that, to be in that kind of space, just slowing yourself down, and then read that part of the psalm. Read it slowly. Read it prayerfully. Uh, pause over words and phrases that stand out to you. Read it repetitively if you want to. Read it a couple of times, but just really linger with it. And just stop after each line and let it soak in. Maybe pray again as you go. God, help me to understand, to hear what you're saying here. And then once you've read it, just a few minutes to be still and let those scriptures just percolate away in your mind. And you'll sometimes find you'll have read a paragraph or two or maybe a whole psalm and there'll just be one word that just stays there. One word. I did this with Psalm 1 just this week and the word that just stayed with me out of that whole reading in Psalm 1 was delight. The one who delights in God. And my heart was just gripped by it. I felt, I want to be that one. I want to be the blessed one who delight, whose delight is in the law of the, not whose obligation is in the law of the law, but whose delight. And it was just that one word. God will do this. He'll put a word on your heart. He'll capture your heart with this. And then start writing. And I would suggest that whatever you write starts with the word Lord. So you make it a prayer and you direct your writing to God and you're praying as you write. And it helps you clarify your response, the response of your spirit. And what, what, what is coming out as you've read this. And so it might be, Lord, I long to delight in you, like the guy writing this psalm. Lord, I see how sinful I am in this passage. Please forgive me. God, you're showing me how wise you are here. Thank you for that. 
Whatever it, you don't, again, no fancy words, no, but it doesn't need to be elaborate. Don't sort of craft it, make it just right. This is between you and God. No one else needs to see it, but it's an expression of your heart to God. doesn't need to be an essay, just whatever your spirit needs to respond to God and then put your pen down, close the book and just be still and allow God that final time just to press all this on your heart and just enjoy his presence. God, what do you want to teach me? What do you want to show me? And sometimes I finish my time by just reciting this prayer from Ephesians 3, which says, I pray that out of your glorious power, you might strengthen me by your spirit in my inmost being, that Christ may dwell in my heart through faith. Amen. And I'm off into my day. It's a transformative practice. It might look different. It will look different for every one of you. You might want to incorporate other things, incorporate some worship. I mean, by that I mean, I do mean music in the more narrow sense of worship, but listening to some worship music. Uh, you might want to have some prayer time, bring your needs before God. Great. Pray for your family. Pray for others around you. Let your prayers grow as broad as you want to. Pray globally. Whatever is on your heart to do. Different seasons, you'll do different things in your tent of meeting, but have that practice. What if we covenanted together as a church to do this? What if we said this is serious enough, this is central enough to our Christian lives? That we together want to commit that we will embed this as a daily discipline in our lives. If you've already got this going, wonderful. I encourage you to continue to enhance it. Keep it fresh. Inject something new into it. Change up the routine a bit. Maybe change the time and the place. I don't know. Whatever helps you just to keep it fresh. If you haven't yet got this discipline in your life, I encourage you. I urge you to start today. It can be done. No matter how busy you are, no matter how fast-paced or unpredictable your schedule is, this can be done with foresight, with planning, with intentionality. I pray that we'd be a people that commit to this, not because we heard it in a sermon, not because you'll commit to anything today, because the All Blacks won. I'll make anything. I'll commit to anything you want. I'm feeling good. But because we want to get to the end of our lives and look back and say, through it all, through the highs, through the lows, through the pain, through the joy, there was a practice that kept me grounded. There was a discipline that kept me at the cross. And I didn't just have the presence of God in my life all those years. I was empowered by the presence of God each and every day. Some days I went through it and I felt nothing. And I was just exhausted and tired and I came out the other side feeling not much different to when I went in. Okay, but I knew God was working on me even then. Some days I did it and I felt like I was in the throne room of heaven itself, lifted up in this amazing experience with God. Wonderful, we'll celebrate those times too, but don't expect them. The point is not how you feel. The point is not how emotionally energized you are. The point is to rest your soul, to bask your soul in God's grace so that he might renew you day by day, that he might refresh you day by day, that he might restore you day by day and lead your soul to rest in him continually so that you can abide in his presence throughout your day may we enjoy the presence of god that's ours what an amazing gift to have never will he leave us never will he forsake us and let's commit let's pitch a tent of meeting in our lives let's form that habit in obedience to god for his glory and that we'd be changed by his presence empowered by his presence each day amen let's pray So God, I pray that none of this that I've said this morning would be legalism. I pray none of it would be coming out of guilt for any of us. 
I pray against any ability that the evil one's got now to just sort of make this all about guilt and shame and fear and condemnation, obligation, legalism, stuff we should do just to be good Christians, behaving ourselves and trying something. God, just sweep all that away now. And from beginning to end, would this be a work of your grace in our lives? Grip our hearts with your grace. Grip our hearts with your presence that you have said to us, my presence will go with you. And you've said it in the plural for all of us and in the singular for each of us. So God, we want to know your presence ever more deeply. We want to be like the trees planted by streams of living water, yielding their fruit in season. And God, we want to commit to this practical expression of that by pitching a tent of meeting in our lives. Even now, God, and as we take communion, would you show us how we can do that? It's a hard challenge, and we're hearing in our minds now all the excuses of why it can't possibly be done, but we also hear the still, small voice of your Spirit inviting us to commune with you in the tent of meeting. We want to take up that invitation. Lord, help us to make that a habit in our lives for Christ's sake, we pray. Amen. Amen. We're going to share communion together now. Uh, what more to say? Then let's bask. In the grace of God, his body broken, his blood poured out for us. I encourage you just to keep your heart open to what God's speaking to you during this time, what he might be pressing on your heart, reminding you of his goodness, reminding you of his grace, and inviting you into a tent of meeting, encounter with him each day. When you're ready, you can take a head to the side tables and let's enjoy communion together. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.